All right. Thanks, Ryan. So we are in this series that we're calling Mark Pictures of Jesus, and I'm excited. I like this series. I like uh, going through a book together. I, uh, I, I enjoy it. Hopefully you do as well. Um, 16 weeks, 16 chapters, and we'll end on Easter Sunday with the resurrection from Mark chapter 16. Doesn't that work out perfectly? Works out awesome. I love it. And um, I... Uh, I'm telling you, this is, uh, this is some good stuff that we get to see. We get to really look at the life of Jesus and just kind of go uh, in depth and, and um, just the, the journey that he takes to the cross. So, so keep in mind as we go through this that he is working his way towards the cross. This whole thing culminates in the cross and then the resurrection, his victory over Satan, sin and death for uh, his glory and for our redemption. And um, so it should be good. Now, before we jump into what we're talking about this morning, I just want to kind of clear something up a little bit from, from last week. Um, last week we spoke about Jesus and his example to us of attractional ministry and then missional ministry. And nobody said anything to me about this, but I just want to maybe bring this up because maybe it, maybe it crossed your mind um, sometime during our time together. Maybe you were thinking, sure Josh, it's, it's, it's easy for you to say, it's easy for you to tell us to do this because for you... Uh, you get paid to do this, right? This is what you do. You go and, 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 and try to draw people to Jesus. And, and I actually have some friends who joke me and say, Josh, you're a professional Christian because that's what you do, right? And um, so maybe you're thinking it's, it's easy for you. But here's, here's the problem with me. When I go out and, and live out this missional piece and this attractional piece of the ministry of Jesus, the, the problem with me is that, yes, it, it does come up. Jesus comes up really quickly in conversations because uh, common to most conversations, very quickly the question comes up, so what do you do? And I have to say, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Now what typically will happen is they'll run, right? They'll take off, and what they'll do is they'll, they'll put up a wall, or they'll, uh, you know, say, oh, look at the time, gotta, gotta go, you know, and, and, and so that's typically what will happen, or they'll start to, you know, say, okay, let's, let's do this, you know, like what, they, they, they know that it's coming, right? I'm a pastor, so they know that I'm gonna get in, into Jesus. And, and so for me, that's, that's, that's a problem. Um, but for you, I, I really believe that you have the, the upper hand, actually, because for, for you, it's, it's when you share Christ and when you, when you live out this missional piece and this attractional piece, the, the motivation for you, and, and they would never think that the motivation for you is any kind of career move, is not, you know, sales, not that it is for me, but they would never, never think that. For, for you, I mean, who is paying you to do this? The, there, there is no pay involved here. For you, it's the motivation uh, that you love Christ and, and, and you're concerned with his mission and you want to be on board with that. And so I just, I just say that just to hopefully clarify a little bit from last week that, that of course, this is something that I do, um, but I want you to do it as well and I want you to live this out as well, out of the motivation of, of your heart and your love for Christ and, and, and your concern for, for the people. And I, I really, really want that. I, I so believe that, um, that there's so much more to life beyond career and, 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 and school and your hobbies and entertainment, coming home to, to cable television every night. I, I want you to see that there's also so much more to faith and coming in here and taking notes and and singing a few songs, and then going home and, and kind of being left feeling like, is that it, or is there something more? Because there is something more. There's, there's a mission that God has called us to be a part of. And so I just wanted to kind of 
kind of get you thinking in that way uh, in light of last week, that, that you're able to be a part of some eternity-shaking, life-changing stuff. Um, so uh, there, there it is for you. Let me, um, let me pray, and we'll jump right into uh, Mark chapter 3. Father, we thank you so much for um, this day. We thank you for the Lord's Day that has been set aside for us to worship you and to refresh and recharge in you and to come together like this and to um, spur one another on towards love and, and good deeds, as it says in, in Hebrews. And uh, Father, I pray that today would, we, would be one of those days where we leave just saying, yeah, I, I've been with Jesus. I, I've met with Jesus. He has spoken to me and, and stirred my heart a bit. And so um, today I pray that you would um, help us to hear what you have for us. Um, would you just remove any obstacles that are maybe blocking our ability to hear from you this morning, whether it be stress, whether it be um, relational issues, family issues, worries, on and on, just the things that, that, that weigh on us, Lord. We just give that burden to you and, and, and ask that you would allow us to hear from you, and even see those things in light of of, of you. And so um, may we respond in ways that glorify you and honor you, and uh, just reflect a genuine love for uh, the Lord. Uh, God, as we gather, we do think of, um, we think of Holly as she's in the hospital right now. I pray that you would be with her, uh, and just give her comfort um, as she's um, just seeking some relief from the pain that she's in. We pray for um, her pregnancy. We pray that um, you would just give Ben and Holly a healthy baby girl, and um, we'd be able to look back some months down the road and just see uh, just a beautiful, healthy child. And uh, in the meantime, give her comfort, give her uh, relief, and uh, just encourage her heart even this this morning. Uh, God, this is your morning. We commit it to you, and we uh, we trust you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I am super excited again to, to go Mark chapter 3 with you this morning. It's a, it's a subject that I'm really passionate about. And before we get there, I'm going to give you uh, another little mini sermon um, just so we can kind of see uh, what's going on in the life ministry of Jesus at this point before we get into the, the, the big chunk of Mark chapter 3 that I want to get into. And so Mark chapter 3 verse 1, let's read it. It says, and again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Just notice here as we just kind of do a little mini sermon, notice here that it says again he entered the synagogue. And so I want you to see that this is the, the practice, this is the habit of Jesus that he went to the synagogue weekly. Again he went. So wink, wink. Take it for what you, what you need it uh, there for yourself. But uh, he goes into the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. So just imagine this man has a, has a bad hand. And, and, and in their culture, in their day, they would view people with, with physical ailments as, as receiving that physical ailment because of some specific sin in their life. Now, what we would say biblically is we would say, yes, of course, all disease, all pain, all suffering is a result of sin. But your specific disease, your specific suffering is not necessarily a specific result because of that sin that is in your life. It's because of all of our sin. And so they would look at him and say, well, the reason you have a bad hand is because you have a bad heart. The reason you have a bad hand is because of something that is in your life. And so he was just outcasted uh, on top of just the actual 
handicap that he's, he's battling with. And so he's, he's in this synagogue. Now let's read, what does Jesus do about this bad hand? Verses 2 through 6. It says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they're looking to accuse him, gather evidence to nail Jesus here, that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here's the deal. The man is in the synagogue with a withered hand, and also in the synagogue are the Pharisees. They are the most powerful uh, religious party of that day and age. And the reason they were the most powerful is not because they had the highest percentage of, of representatives and all that good stuff in Judaism. The reason they were the most powerful is because they were not the wealthy they were the, the businessmen, and so they were just the average working class businessmen on the same level as the people. So they were the closest to the people, so they had the greatest influence. And so the Pharisees are in there as well, and, and just these middle class businessmen who were known for keeping every detail of the Old Testament law, but also known for, for creating this list of rules and regulations that they held up to equal authority with the Bible, the, the Old Testament. And so they're seen in the New Testament as these prideful, arrogant, cocky, legalistic men. And they were looking to Jesus. They're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do about this guy with a withered hand. They're waiting to see if he's actually going to heal this sick man as he has done with so many people already in this early point of his, his ministry. Because the Sabbath was a day in the Old Testament set aside for a, a day of rest. God practiced it in his, his creation account. He himself practiced it, even though he doesn't need rest, but he practiced it to show for us that it's important. So the dab, Sabbath is his day of rest, but they so wanted to nail Jesus that they said, what we're going to do is we're going to consider even healing a man, doing good, helping this man effortlessly for Jesus. He just has to say, stretch out your hand, and he's healed, right? They're ready to even consider that. As, as work on the Sabbath, because they just want to nail Jesus. Consider that a violation of the law. They're gathering evidence so that they might uh, accuse him. And, 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 and you've maybe seen this before in your own life, right? You've seen it certainly on, on television, all the celebrities. They get high, what happens? People just want to get them, right? It's like a target is on their, on their chest. Maybe you can, girls, you can think back to uh, high school. Remember high school? There's a new girl at the school, and if she's attractive, She's in big trouble, right? She's attractive. It's like all the girls are just, who does she think she is here to get our men, right? You know, so they're all over her, even though she may not have done anything wrong. It's just how it goes. If somebody's doing well or is, is, is attractive or whatever, they're out to get him. And that really is the case for Jesus. They're ready to get him because they're so prideful that they're ready to take Jesus down and see if they might uh, accuse him and and he's the one that they had been waiting for he was the messiah they know the old testament well that he is fulfilling the old testament but when he actually arrives these pharisees are so self-righteous so full of them them themselves that they're unable to see jesus as lord and and they're unable to see their need for righteousness in him because they think they have plenty of righteousness in in themselves and so just a, a quick encouragement is this don't let this heart be in you. 
Don't let this heart be in you that you're, you think you're doing so well spiritually that you really don't need Jesus. And that even happens among Christians that, that we've, we've been saved by the grace of Jesus under the work of what Jesus has done. But then we get to this point where we start to say, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty holy. I'm living up to the standard of the Bible. And we start to find our righteousness in and of ourselves rather than saying, you know what? It doesn't matter compared to God. I'm filthy. And, and, and so we need to find our righteousness not in and of ourselves, but in, in Christ. So evaluate your heart and, and, and really understand that we don't deserve God's favor, just like these Pharisees didn't deserve God's favor. And so don't miss Jesus in that. Now, what does Jesus do? I love this. He silences the Pharisees. Look at verse 4. Again, verse 4. And, and he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. So he asked this question. He knows what they're thinking right off the bat. He knows what they're thinking. And he just says, Hey, is, is it bad for me to do good? Is it bad for me to do good? To, to, to leave this man where he's at. He might as well be dead in this society. He might as well have been killed in this culture. Do you want me to leave him there? Is that a bad, uh, is, is it bad for me to actually heal him? And he just kind of, I love this about Jesus. He just loves to, to give it to the, to, the, to the prideful, the cocky, the arrogant. I love that Jesus is always seen with these Pharisees. They're just kind of sticking it to the man. I love that guy. And, and, and many people today have this, this mental picture of Jesus, that he's, he's the guy in the white bathrobe, right? And he talks like Michael Jackson. He's got this perfectly, like, blown, dry hair. And, and, and we kind of have this picture of this, this soft Jesus. But I, I love to see in the Scripture that he wasn't this soft Jesus. I think today, if you, if you look at statistics and look at the ratio of men to women in the church across America, Men just can't relate to Jesus because we present him as a soft Jesus. But here we really see that Jesus has no problem sticking it to the self-righteous jerks. Jesus is a carpenter with callus on his hands. And can I just say that Jesus would never wear skinny jeans? He wouldn't. It just couldn't happen. Just saying. That's my interpretation. Verse 6 then ends with the, the Pharisees so ticked at Jesus. He was just kind of giving them this little jab. So ticked at Jesus that they start to rally support and they start to talk and and, and kind of conspire together with the Herodians who they typically wouldn't conspire together with except now they have this common enemy in in Jesus because they're all so self-righteous and and prideful. They conspire together and it says that they seek how they might destroy him. They're ready to take Jesus out. And so now as we move through the journey of Christ towards the cross, we start to see people trying to take Jesus out. Many love him for his miracles and his teaching but then the prideful are ready to get rid of him because he's, he's a threat. And somehow in the beautiful mystery of God's sovereignty in all of this, God is allowing this to happen so that Jesus will go to the cross, so that he will die for us, for our sin, to give us uh, life and, and, and payment for our sin. So that's the mini-sermon. That one was for free. Now we'll get into it, verses 7 through, through 12. 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when a great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So here's what we have. 
the word has spread about Jesus that he is doing all these incredible miracles. And so naturally, the curious people are coming to see what's going on. And then also naturally, the, those who are sick and have issues physically are coming to, to be healed uh, by Jesus. And, and, and what we need to see, as we talked about a little bit last week, is that there are crowds pressing in on Jesus. I mean, they're just all over Jesus. They want to touch him so that they can be healed. And it says that he tells the disciples, let's get a boat, put it out in the water a little bit so that I can do my thing but not be crushed, right? I mean, he was that popular. People were all around him. And the question for all of us this morning, as we even talked about last week, is are we simply part of the crowd? Are we just consumers of Jesus that we just want what he can give us and just take and take and take and take? Are we just simply a part of the crowd. Now, don't get me wrong. We are all consumers of Jesus. He has so much to give us, and, 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 and we just haven't even scratched the surface of what Christ has to offer us as far as our salvation, as far as joy. He has so much to give us, but Scripture is clear that Jesus calls you to move beyond the crowd and move into this, this being a committed follower of Jesus Christ, the, the crowd to the committed, what we're going to call that this morning from the scriptures is we're going to call it becoming a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. These are the, the, the people who have moved beyond crowds and now they are disciples. They are committed to Christ and they are following Christ. And so what we're going to look at for the remainder of the time this morning is discipleship. Discipleship. And uh, a little later in Jesus' ministry as recorded in, in Luke chapter 14, I love this. You don't have to flip there. But we see Jesus do something really unlikely. We see Jesus with all the crowds around him. We see him, just, he just starts to weed out the, the crowd. He starts to talk about being a disciple of him. And he starts to say things like, you have to count the cost. He starts to say things like, unless you blank, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you're, for example, one of the things, unless you're, willing to take up your cross and, and follow me. You cannot be my disciple. What is the cross for them? The cross was this execution method that, that many criminals were being uh, executed by. And, and crosses would line these Roman roads in their days to, to fear people, frighten people into to, to submitting to Roman rule and Roman authority. And so there were people hanging on crosses, dying as spectacles in the streets. So you can imagine as Jesus is saying, Unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You can imagine as he's saying that, over his shoulders, in the horizon, are, are people hanging on crosses. Now, it's one thing for me to stand here and try to tell you how to be a disciple of Jesus and that it, it requires much and you must count the cost. It, it's one thing for me to say that while you're sitting in your cushioned chairs and we have music and sometimes we have heat, right? It, it's one thing for me to say that. But for Jesus to say that to these crowds while people are dying on the crosses around him is an entirely different thing. And he's saying, are you ready? Are you serious about following me? Because unless you're ready for that, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, who does that, right? Who does that? We love crowds. In our American mindset, crowd equals success. I mean, pastors we love crowds. It, and again, in our mind, it equals success. And crowds are flocking to Jesus. They're all about his miracles. They're all about his powerful, full teaching. At least for the first year, these crowds are all around Jesus. But eventually, he starts to turn them away. 
you start to say, all right, unless you're serious, it's time to go home. And here's why. Because if you're going to follow Christ, it's not all cush. If you're going to follow Christ, it will get tough. And he knew that the posers were going to bail anyways, and so he's calling the committed among the crowds, and he's making for himself the disciples. Now, it's not too easy, not too difficult, rather, to get a crowd. If you want to tickle ears of, of the hearers, of those who are, are listening, and Paul uh, instructs Timothy that we're not out to tickle anybody's ears. So it's not too difficult to get a crowd. My, my kids, um, I can give them what they want, and what they want all the time is candy. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They would eat candy for sure. In fact, we get the request at least once a day for, for candy from, from uh, our boys. And, and if we simply allow them to have candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what would happen? They would be malnourished and they would shrivel up and, and they would die or just go crazy from all the sugar and, and maybe jump off a cliff or something. I don't know. Um, likewise for Jesus, if he gave them what they wanted, and only what they wanted, which was his miracles, they would die apart from him because miracles and, and, and seeing the miracles and experiencing the miracles in and of themselves will not save them from their eternal consequence of their sin, their, their death. They must trust him as their God. They must place faith in him as, as their Lord, and they must become true disciples of Jesus, not just the crowds. And so for the, the rest of our time together, let's talk about being a true disciple of Christ, and let's talk a little bit about um, how we go about discipleship and, and ourselves discipling others under the example of Christ. Now, the, the word disciple literally means to be a, a learner, uh, to be a learner under a specific teacher and under a specific teaching. And so a, a disciple is a careful follower of a specific teacher's teaching and in the new testament we 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 hear word of the disciples of john the baptizer we hear word of the disciples of the pharisees we hear of the disciples even in the new testament speaking of the disciples of of moses but most often in the new testament we hear about the disciples of of jesus in fact we weren't even called christians until acts chapter 11 in antioch they were first called christians prior to that they were called either disciples of Jesus or followers of the way. The, the way coming from John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were followers of the way or disciples, people who were more than just the crowds, people who were more than just people who showed up to a building and sat in, in some seats. They were actual disciples, followers of, of Jesus, people who lived his teachings, learned his teachings, lived his teachings, and followed him uh, faithfully. Those are disciples of Jesus. And after his resurrection in Matthew chapter uh, 28, 19 through 20, uh, what does Jesus command of us? You've heard it before. It's the Great Commission. We'll get it up here on the screen. Matthew 28, uh, 19 through 20. And uh, why don't you just check this out? Here's what Jesus says. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, go therefore and make disciples. We're not called to go therefore and gather a crowd. We're called to make disciples. That is God's command to us. And let's read on. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, We covered that in Mark chapter 1. But now catch this. Teaching them... So there's this teaching element there, teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you. Not just the, the things that are necessary for salvation, for being made right with God, but teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. To become growing adherents to the, the, the teachings of Jesus. And so what we're beginning to see now is, is as disciples of Jesus, here's our responsibility. Our first responsibility is to become a disciple of Jesus, become a true disciple, and our second responsibility is to go, as we see here, and, and, and to make disciples. And so again, let's pop the question on you again. Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Do you really adhere to his teaching? The greatest, most central piece of his teaching is that you are to place faith in him as, as your Lord. And, and for me, I'll just tell you the most frightening scripture uh, in the entire Bible for me is is in Matthew chapter 7. And, and, and here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? He says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, Jesus, we follow you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we worship you. Just because you say that, just because you come here, doesn't mean you're going to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. And that horrifies me. He goes on to say that, that after those people die, they stand before him, all excited to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. And you know what he says to him? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Absolutely terrifying for me. And, and as a pastor, one of my, my greatest fears is that I would ever give anyone this false assurance that they are right with God so that then they come before the Lord in eternity and say, well, don't you remember? I went to Josh's church. I I sat there for all those years. That's one of my greatest fears. So know this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you claim the name of Jesus doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus by casually claiming his name. Just like casually claiming a political party when you register to vote doesn't mean you get it don't doesn't mean you understand that doesn't mean you're really following that it doesn't and and likewise it just doesn't make you a disciple because you claim the name of christ and so what i would do in response to that is challenge you um, write this down second corinthians thirteen five. this is a, a really important uh, scripture coming from uh, paul he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And I would just read all the scriptures around that and just hear what Paul has to say to you about that. I don't believe that God wants us to go about our lives living in uncertainty, not knowing really if we've really been made right with, with Christ. But what he is saying here is that if your life doesn't reflect a life changed by Christ, you really need to examine your life and say, am I really a true disciple of, of, of the Lord. And so it's, it's time to ask God, am I true or am I, am I counterfeit? So uh, first responsibility, become a disciple. Second responsibility is to make disciples, not just make converts, but, but make disciples. And, and I'll say it this way. We, we all, all of us as a church, as individuals need to be committed to this thing we call discipleship. And that means that we're all being faithful disciples of Jesus. That means we're all looking to receive discipleship in some form. We're all looking to provide discipleship in in, in some form. We're all seeking to push people into discipleship of some form. And we're all going to honor discipleship in our hearts and how we uh, carry ourselves in in our lives. And and so ultimately, uh, when we talk discipleship, Jesus is our disciple. 
even even like when when we we look at Jesus being referred to as the chief shepherd, ultimately Jesus is our pastor. He's also ultimately our our disciples discipler and he's also our, our primary example of how to engage in discipleship he really sets that precedent for us and we see it here in in mark chapter three and so here's what we're going to do we're going to start here with jesus's precedent um, for discipleship and then we're going to bounce around a little bit to some just some key passages on discipleship and i don't want to have you turn to all those passages because your thumbs might get a little achy and crampy so you just look on the screen and um and uh, i'll have the i'll have the scripture up there for you and what we're going to look at in each of these these passages is just an element of discipleship as laid out for us in scripture and, and so the first element is this discipleship is relational discipleship is relational so look here with me mark chapter 3 we'll look at 13 through 19 seeing that discipleship is uh, relational here's what we read and he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named disciple or named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, um, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James and John, uh, the son, uh, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, um, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who but betrayed him. And so as we look through uh, these, these, these men, what we're beginning to see here is that discipleship is, is relational. We meet Jesus' 12 disciples who will become his 12 apostles, those who he commissions to go out and to really keep this thing moving after he ascends. So we see Simon, Peter, he's, as, as we know, the story of the New Testament, he's the impulsive one. He's the one who becomes a spokesman for the disciples. We meet Andrew, who is Peter's brother and a fisherman with um, Peter. We meet James and John, who are also fishermen. He calls these guys the, the sons of thunders, uh, thunder. I love how Jesus, you know, kind of like a bunch of college frat boys, has nicknames for his boys here. You have, you have the sons of thunder. You have uh, Bartholomew. You have Philip. There's also Matthew, that former tax collector we looked at last week, who I would imagine the Jewish disciples struggled with, this guy who used to steal their money. There's Thomas, who's famous for bailing on Jesus, but I think should also be famous for the fact that history tells us that he's the first to bring the gospel outside of the Roman Empire, brings the gospel into, uh, in, into modern India. There's James, uh, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, or Simon the Zealot elsewhere in Scripture, and then there's Judas Iscariot. He's the treasurer who in the end sells Jesus out for chump change, proving that he was in fact not uh, a true disciple. And so what we have here in, in verse 13, look there with me, verse 13, we see that Jesus goes up on the mountain. Now, the mountain throughout the Bible is, is often seen as this place where you go to meet with God. Think, think Moses and the Ten Commandments. And here, Jesus goes up on the mountain. And Luke chapter 6 gives a little more detail to Jesus going up on the mountain. And it says that he was there all night long in prayer. And so he's praying all night long about these men that would become his disciples. He's really saying, God, who is it that you want me to call to be my disciples who will then be more specifically my apostles? And so when the day comes, Luke chapter 6 says that he calls his disciples. That is, you have the crowd. He then calls his disciples, those who were in the broad sense disciples, to come to him. And then from among the disciples, he calls specifically the 12 whom he has, has chosen here. And I'll, I'll say this. 
Notice that Jesus has carefully and prayerfully appointed those people who would become his disciples. He he was real careful about that. I want to encourage you, we need to be a people who follow the example of Jesus and disciple others, but be prayerful about it and be careful about it. Here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't call those people who had some great spiritual track record necessarily. He didn't go and look for the, the cream of the crop culturally, but what he did do is, is he found the people that God had put right in front of him and said, all right, who, God, of these people are you calling me to disciple? And I, I would say the same thing for you is, is God has probably put the people that he wants you to disciple or the person that he wants you to pour into. God's probably already put that person in front of you. And so just prayerfully say, God, who is it? Who is it? And I want you to specifically pinpoint those people. So often we just kind of become casual about things. We say, yeah, I hope my life is helping somebody. I hope I'm... I'm discipling somebody in a sense, but we need to be really focused as Jesus was focused. He spent all night long praying through this. And so I would, um, I would venture to say that um, God has the person in front of you and you should pray and say, God, who is it? Now, with the 12, let's see what Jesus does in this relational aspect of his discipleship. Um, look at verse 14 again, and it says, And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So I love this. He appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. And this is, this is really good because a lot of us, when we think discipleship, we think this idea of being a learner or a disciple of somebody. We, we picture a classroom setting. But what we see here is that it's more than just a classroom setting. It's actually being with somebody so that you can see what they do. You can see how they live. You can see how they respond when the car cuts them off on the road so that you can see how they respond when their kids misbehave. You can see how they interact with those people who don't love Jesus. You can see how they study the Bible. You can see how they pray. It's relational. It's rubbing shoulders with that person. I'll never, I'll never forget uh, when this first hit me. Um, I remember Becky and I had um, a, a group of students. We used to work with teenagers primarily. We had a group of students that we were praying with them, and we were all praying together. And it first hit me pretty heavy, just a simple thing, when we were praying, and, and this one girl starts to pray, and as she's praying, she, she said a couple phrases in her prayer that, that I often say uh, when, when I'm praying. And I just remember it just something so simple just hit me like a, a ton of bricks that that not only do they catch what I actually teach them when I sit down with them and open up the Bible, but they're catching what I just indirectly do, what I just casually do. And, and I want you to see that discipleship is, is super r- relational. Oftentimes it's been said that more is, 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 is caught than is directly taught. More is caught than taught. And even thinking back through my, my formidable years as a, as, a, as a youth and as a young guy, I, I can think back through people specifically who had poured in my life. And I'll be honest, I can think of one, maybe two specific teachings that those people who poured into my life gave me. I mean, it's all there. I soaked it all up, and I'm regurgitating some of the stuff now that, that they probably taught me. But I can probably give you now specifically one or two teachings. But here's what I, I can really give you all kinds of examples of is, is how they acted, how they lived, and, and, and what they taught me in that way. I remember there was this one camp counselor at this camp that I went to and his name they had nicknames for all the counselors his name was Weeder I don't know why and so his name was Weeder and I'll remember this crazy redhead counselor just what was caught for me from him was that it's okay to be a Christian 
and a teenager. It's, it can be cool to follow Jesus. Now, the, the next guy I, I'll give you, I remember his name was Bill, and there was not an ounce of cool in this guy, not an ounce of cool. And, 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 and he was known for his, uh, his tie-dye shirts and his red Chuck Taylor. So I'll just tell you that. Not cool. There was no coolness. But what I learned from Bill was this. I learned that Bill was, was passionate about the eternal state of people's souls. And, and, and that, for me, was, was caught. I got that from him. I remember from this, this guy, Kevin, just a year older than me, I learned from Kevin what spiritual maturity in a young man looks like. Another guy yeah, who poured into my life, his name was Eric. I learned what it means to pray and to really value and believe in, in, in prayer. And I don't remember much of what they taught me with their Bibles open uh, verbatim, but, but I, I, I learned much from their actions. And, and you may be thinking, Josh, I want to do that. I want to disciple in that way, um, but I don't really know. I don't know that I have, have the time for that. Here's, here's what I would call you to do. I would call you to use this relational element of discipleship and, and do what, what, what we call doubling your time. You can double your time. In other words, do things that you would typically do, but when doing it, bring another person uh, along with you. And so, ladies, some of you like to shop. I absolutely hate shopping, so don't try to double your time and bring me along shopping because I hate it. But ladies, you like to shop, bring another lady along, uh, maybe a younger lady or just somebody who's younger in the faith. Bring them along, and of course you're going to talk, right? And so don't just talk about the, the blouse, which is a strange word to me. Don't just talk about the blouse, but talk about the Lord, right? And, and you're doubling your time. Maybe, maybe it, it's when you go out and run errands. Maybe, fellas, it's when you go to the gym. Maybe it's you're helping somebody that you know um, needs some help, whether it be shoveling or cleaning or moving. And bring somebody else along, and you're doubling your time, and you're not only doing that task, but you're also able to spend some time talking to the person along the way and pouring in, into them. And, and we see Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. It goes on, next piece, it says, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to, to cast out demons. So these disciples were, were meaningful relationships with Jesus, yes, but it didn't just stop there as, hey, these are my pals, but he, he knew that he had something that he was preparing them for. The ultimate purpose here was that he might send them out and release them to go and to preach and, and to perform the miracles that he had been performing. He's prepping them for something. And so what does Jesus do? Along the way, as he's spending time with them, they're rubbing shoulders in this relational piece of discipleship. He's giving them opportunities to step up and to teach. He's giving them opportunities to step up and under his power per- perform uh, miracles. And as they fumble along through ministry, Jesus is able to correct them. As they fumble along through ministry, Jesus is able to say, all right, you're, you're really struggling. Let me step in here and help you out. And, and likewise, we can do that. We can rub shoulders with people relationally. And when they're struggling, you can pinpoint things. And as they ask questions, you can help them and you can correct them. And so I would encourage you to begin to do uh, the same as Jesus did. Uh, be with them and keep in mind that you're getting them ready for something. You're going to send them out to preach. You're going to give them that authority to do it on their own as Jesus does. And so let them step in and do it along the way. Discipleship is relational. Here's, here's just a few more. We'll move much faster through these. Uh, discipleship is relational, but it's also informational. And so look up on the screen. This is a, a, an awesome passage in, in regards to discipleship. Uh, to me, probably one of the most primary passages uh, in regards uh, to discipleship. It's Second Timothy uh, 2, verse 2. And here's what Paul says uh, to Timothy. Second Timothy 2, 2. He says, 
And what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And, and, and so notice here, uh, as we're talking about discipleship being informational, notice here how Paul treats the information that is to be passed along. He says, the things which you have heard from me. That's the information. What are these things? These would be the, the good news of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the life-changing truth, and then also just other things that clarify the gospel, other truths about Christ about how to live your life. He says, the things which you have heard from me. What does he tell them to do with these things, with these, these truths, with this information? He tells them, entrust it to faithful men. And when trust means to, to, to give to somebody something that is valuable, and you're trusting them to, to protect it. And so maybe for you, you can, you can think of maybe a, a parent or a grandparent gave you something valuable they passed it on to you maybe it was a family heirloom and they want you to have it but they also want you to take care of it and to protect it maybe it's like that diamond that's been in your your family for generations and grandmother passed it down to mother and mother passed it down to daughter they give it to you as a great gift they want you to enjoy it but they also expect you to protect it and 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 to pass it on to somebody else someday and this is how i think paul is telling us we need to see these truths that they are are, are priceless. They are to be protected. And they, in discipleship, it's information that is to be passed on someday. And so we must carefully entrust these truths to somebody else. Not just the gospel, but the, the whole truth of the scriptures. Begin to teach that and pour that into somebody else. Who does he tell them to, to, to entrust it to? Notice there in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. He says, entrust it to faithful men. Entrust it to those people who are, are faithful your grandma's not going to give you her diamond if she doesn't think you're going to be faithful with it, if she thinks you're going to lose it. Likewise, Paul says, entrust these truths to faithful men, people who are serious disciples of the Lord, and, and find those faithful people in your life that you might pour into. Because listen, God doesn't want you to waste your time. He doesn't want you to go pour into somebody that's not going to take it seriously, not really going to grow. So when you disciple, disciple those who prove to be faithful, faithful men. This leads us to our, our next a piece of discipleship. It's informational. Now it's also generational. And we'll see this in the same verse. Look at 2 Timothy 2.2 2 again. Notice that there's several generations here in, in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. First of all, we have generation number one is Paul. He's the one doing the speaker, the, the speaking here. Generation number two is Timothy, the one that Paul is talking to. Uh, he's Paul's son in the faith, as referred to elsewhere in Scripture. Generation number three is the faithful men that he tells Timothy to entrust these truths to. And then generation number four, faithful men who will teach others also. And so generation number four is others also, those who receive the teaching from the faithful men. So we see four generations of discipleship here. We see that discipleship is, is generational, and it's meant to be passed down in evangelism, but it's also meant to be passed down, these truths passed down in discipleship, carefully passing on these truths, being certain that they're understood and, and, and carefully kept and carefully uh, valued. Because truth be told is this, we're, we're all only one generation away from a departure from the word. If you think about it, we're only a generation away from people saying, all right, this generation, I'm not going to value this stuff anymore. Nobody taught it to me. Nobody said it's important to value this and to treasure it. So we're only a generation away from departure. So don't let it stop with you. 
with it being taught to you and then it stops with you. Don't be the person who receives the family diamond, wears it on her finger, and decides I'm going to be buried with this diamond on my finger. It's going into the casket with me. It's such a waste. Pass it on. Pass it on. Let me give you another text that I think is, is really uh, important in regards to generational discipleship. It's on the screen as well. It's Titus 2, 3 through 6. Titus 2, 3 through 6. And, and listen to what it says. Titus 2, 3 through 6. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So here's what we see. We see some, some instruction for uh, older women here. Women, be reverent in your behavior. Uh, don't be slanderers. Don't be drunks. It's, it's, nothing's crazier than a drunk grandma, right? And so instead, it, it says, <laughs> don't, be, don't be a drunk. Don't be a <laughs> it's true, right? Don't be a slanderer. Be reverent in behavior. Teach what is good. And so train the, the young women. Train young women to be loving mothers. Train young women to be uh, faithful wives. Train young women how to, 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 to run their home and, and how to honor their, their husband. And, and, and what he's saying is this, and we're not talking to any old ladies in this room. Uh, what he's saying is this, as you grow older and as you have a vision of, of, of what your future might be as you start to think about retirement and you think about all of that kind of stuff, let it be very kingdom-minded. So many people have dreams of, of retirement and then just completely checking out. And there is no place in the Bible that says, retire, go to an island, and just be all by yourself with your, your spouse and just live at large. No, there's nothing in the Bible about checking out. In fact, use your age, as he says here, use your wisdom, uh, use your experience to help others who are lacking in age, lacking in wisdom, lacking in, in experience. And um, I'm telling you, so many, so many people are excited for when the kids are out of the house or when I get to retirement. Here's everything that I'm going to do. But on their, 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 their game plan has nothing to do with how I might pour into somebody else with the time that maybe God has now given me because I'm not at home killing myself with with my kids and and in our culture there's this growing divide isn't there there's a growing divide between between ages there's a growing divide between younger and older and and we so glorify youth and we so lift up youth I mean doesn't it seem like the pop stars are getting younger and younger and younger so now you have like nine-year-old Justin Bieber who you know the 25 years want to be just like him right I mean this it's crazy right and there's just this growing divide as we glorify youth and we segregate um, the the ages more and more and and more and the truth is the older people are often freaked out by youth and by younger people because they have this language all their own they can barely communicate anymore unless they're hiding behind Facebook or their cell phone to 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 text and talk to you and 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 we need to be very careful that though that is happening in our culture that we combat that and honor what the scripture says here in 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 titus chapter 2 that we wouldn't just allow ourselves to be segregated and and disconnected that we would really serve well and and it even happens as we get older don't just blame it on teenagers as we get older what happens too is is even 
church culture today just continues to extend youth group, doesn't it? And so you have youth group, and you think they graduate youth group, and then they become an adult, right? No, they graduate youth group, and in church culture, they move into to, to college ministry. Not a bad thing. But then we move them from college ministry and we move them into 20-somethings ministry. And then after 20-somethings ministry, we move them into young marrieds ministry. And then after young marrieds ministry, it's, it's mothers of preschoolers and, 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 and parents of preschoolers. And then after that, it's parents with young kids. And you just kind of continue this, this youth group mentality and continue to segregate uh, each other. And then what happens is you have a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing trying to learn from a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing, right? Idiots learning from idiots. The ignorant learning from the, the ignorant. And what Paul suggests here is don't do that. Get them together. Get the older and the younger together so that, that, that older women might help the younger women. As the older women have some free time now that the kids are out of the house, they can teach the younger women how, how, to, how to save your marriage in the middle of crazy things happening with your children. Get the, get the older men with the younger men so that they might not run from them but they might pour into them because the younger men are not self-controlled. It says teach them how to be self-controlled. As you get a little older, men, you'll have some, some wisdom. And you can teach the younger men not how to be boys who shave at 25. They're still acting like children, right? Teach them how to be self-controlled. You know what I'm asking God for? I pray for a lot for our brand new young churches. I, I pray that God will give us some gray hair. I don't mean us, some gray hair. I mean, even though that's happening, right, with my children, it's definitely starting to, starting to sprout here. I'm asking God that he would bring us some wisdom, <laughs> that he would bring us some, some older people, people with wisdom and with experience. And, and I, like Timothy, can stand up here. Timothy was young. I can stand up here and preach my head off um, and, and do it with confidence because I'm not preaching my agenda. I'm not preaching my thoughts. I'm preaching thoughts from Scripture. And so I can do that confidently, but at the same time, I'm praying that God would give us some, some gray hair, some wisdom to join us, that people, when they're older, wouldn't walk into here and see just how green we are and, and run, but they would say, man, that's a tremendous opportunity for me to serve, a tremendous opportunity for me to give. Discipleship is generational. We have to see that. Finally, last one, we'll close it out here. Discipleship is parental. It's parental. And, and I could give you an entire sermon on this one. In fact, I think I have done that before, not here. Um, but discipleship is parental. And uh, I'll give you one passage that I think jives best with Mark chapter 3. There's so many passages on this, but the one passage I think best portrays what Jesus is doing here in, in Mark chapter 3 is, is Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Uh, what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 3, as we read earlier, is he's prepping his disciples so that he might send them out to preach. And, and likewise, parents and and future parents and really all of us who someday god calls us uh, all of us to, to to pour into those who are parentless the the orphans and so in some sense we're all parents whether we're there or not to to people without uh, or, or children without parents in their lives people who have absentee parents we're all parents in a sense and and, and what the bible tells us is that when it comes to children when it comes to your specific children or your children that you're going to have someday, be prepared because the biblical mandate is you are the one who is responsible for discipling your child. Not to hand it off, but you must disciple your, your child. And God's going to bring other people in their lives to influence them, but it is your responsibility to make sure that they're, 
disciple. Jesus chose 12 men so that he might send them out to preach, and we must disciple our children so that we might send them out to the world. So here, here's Psalm 127, 3 through 5. This is a picture I keep in my Bible of my, my little boy. Someday I'll change it with my little daughter in there too. I'm so pumped about that. But on the back of this picture is uh, this, this passage. Um, just I look at it and remind it often. Here's what it says, Psalm 127, 3 through 5. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Notice here that it says children are a heritage. Other translations say children are a blessing. It also says they are a reward. Children are not to be looked at as a burden. Children are not to be looked at as a risk that comes with sex. Children are to be looked at as uh, as a blessing. And, and parents and, and future parents in this room, you need to understand that it says here that they are like arrows, that we must pridefully Fill our quiver with them. What's a quiver? A quiver is the thing that you, you have in your belt that you hold all your, or on your back, you hold all your, your arrows. It says you are blessed if you have a quiver full of, of children. And so you're blessed if you have many children. We love kids here. Kids, kids are great. I dream of a church someday that God would grow us to the place where we have kids running a, around this place on a sunny morning. They are a good thing. Becky and I go in, 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 in public uh, with our kids, and, and, and especially in Boston here, we go out in public and people look at us like we're crazy, right, with, with, with two children at our age. And then she turns sideways and they see her profile that she's pregnant right now. And they must think, you know, are these people Mormon? What's going on, right? It says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. You are blessed if you have many of these children. Many of these, he refers to them as arrows. Because what do you do with an arrow? You load up your arrow and you shoot out. The arrow. And in 18 years, we send our kids out. I'm going to make Becky cry. In 18 years, we, we send our, our, our kids out. And I don't want to be sending out duds. I don't want to go, and they just kind of hit the mark, miss the mark. I pray that God would allow us to send out arrows that hit the target for everything that God has designed them for. And my greatest, greatest fear as a parent is that my kids wouldn't follow Jesus. And what's your greatest fear when you think about your children someday, if God leads you to that? Is your greatest fear that they wouldn't be the athlete that you were? Is your greatest fear that they wouldn't get into Harvard or BC? Is your greatest fear that they wouldn't enjoy financial prosperity? Or is your greatest fear that they wouldn't follow Jesus? That's my greatest, greatest fear. I have aspirations for my kids that they would live for Jesus and find every ounce of joy that I find in him. And so as a parent or as future parents, what are you going to value for the future of your kid? What are you going to tell them? This is what you're, you're to be striving for. This is what you're to be going towards. And, and so I'm, I'm going to do my role as a parent, all that I can do. And my role as a parent is to pray like crazy for my kids and to disciple my kids. And so every night I, I, I put my boys down, I lean over the bunk bed, and I say, God, I pray that they would Love Jesus, know Jesus, and grow to be men of God. A few months I get to pray, God, I pray that she would know Jesus and love Jesus and become a woman of God. And I pray that you would give her a great husband someday who's not a jerk 
shotgun. I will pull out my shotgun. Amen. Right? And so I pray. I pray for my kids regularly. And, and then I also disciple them. It's all I can do. I trust in God's sovereignty. Proverbs 22, 6. Write this one down. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train him up. That's your job. That's your job. Another great passage. Can't give it to you for the sake of time. But Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. This is your homework, right? It tells us how this practically looks. How we go about training up our children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Write that one down. Do these as, as homework. The, the Bible talks about discipleship being parental. Is being parental. And you'll often hear the phrase in the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in threes there because it's parental. It's to be passed down. You often hear, fear the Lord, you and your sons and your son's son. Isn't that cool? It's parental. So parents, this is our responsibility. Be super intentional about it. I love sitting down with my boys and reading the Bible every morning. I love that. I love getting this little uh, pack of note cards that I have with Isaiah and going through scriptures with him. It's unbelievable what he soaks up. I love going through catechism stuff with him. I love that, and he loves it. And so I would just encourage you, be very intentional about that. Don't half-heartedly just hope it's happening, but be very intentional about that. Some of you don't know where to start. I'd love to talk to you. Go on our website, thecharlesriverchurch.com, and go to resources. Under there, we have all kinds of books that you can get under the marriage and and family section. We just want to encourage you there. It's parental. Also, husbands, you're called in Scripture, Ephesians 5, to lead your wife well. There's a discipleship element there. It says, as Jesus washed us with the water of the word, so we are to wash our wives with the water of the word. In other words, be in the Scriptures with your spouse. When's the last time? You've been in the scriptures with your spouse. God calls us to do that. And so let's be serious about discipleship. We'll close that reminding us that it's, it's relational. It is rubbing shoulders, being with them. It's also, uh, it, it's also informational that we're passing a set of truths that have been entrusted to us. We pass it on. It's also generational that it's younger and older coming together. It's also um, cyclical that we're passing it down in this generational discipleship. And it's also parental. It's in the family. It's happening regularly in the family. Not just casually, but you read the Bible with your family and you do it often. And so I want to call us to be serious about it. One of our core values as a, as a brand new church, because we, we, we list our values so that we know what we're striving to be. One of our core values is that discipleship is essential in raising up a generation of faithful believers. It is essential. And so two questions for all of us as we finish up here. First of all, who has God put in front of you that he's calling you to disciple, whether it be a child, whether it be a girlfriend, whether it be uh, another lady in your life, another guy in your life, who is he putting before you that you are called to disciple? Pinpoint it, identify it, talk with him about it, move forward. How can we just be serious about pouring into your life? And then also, the other question, of course, is are you a disciple? Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Have you really placed faith in his teaching that he is God and that he is the only hope for eternity? Have you trusted in him? And so I call you to that, that you would call out to God this morning and say, God, I need you, I trust you, and I want to make you my Lord, and I want to follow you all the days of my life as your disciple. I want to just be the crowd who just sucks from you, consumes, but I want to follow you. Let me pray.